Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the School of Travel's podcast. Today, I'm speaking with James Ellsmore, serial entrepreneur, writer, and the founder of Island Innovation, an organization that helps island communities become more sustainable and resilient by providing virtual events, workshops, public speaking opportunities, and digital marketing communications. As part of his university studies, James started visiting remote island communities and began to see the links between them and the need to help them become more sustainable in this rapidly changing global environment. James and I discuss islands that you may not have considered visiting before, especially in the Caribbean and the Pacific, and what makes these islands so special. If you've never spent much time visiting islands beyond stopping off on a cruise or as part of an all-inclusive tour, I hope this interview will help you see islands with a whole new set of travelers' eyes. Welcome to episode 61 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I'm here with James Elsmore. James, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I am happy to be here with you because I have been really interested in talking about your main focus that you uh, in travel, which we'll get to in a moment. But first of all, James, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. So I am uh, James Ellsmore. I founded and run an organization called Island Innovation. I've been nomading in some form for, I guess, the last five or six years. I don't know when I class as my start date, um, but living outside of, from the UK, but living outside of the UK for the last 10 years um, and uh, now have semi-settled in Lisbon, Portugal. But we'll see if I do some more travel again soon. Nice. And that's where we met, by the way, listeners. We met here in Lisbon. Um, James is one of the people from the UK that came into Portugal before the end of uh, 2020. I think you had until December 31st to come over to Portugal, right? Can you just briefly explain how that works? Yeah. So Brexit happened. <laughs> we won't go into that. I think it's worth avoiding. But um, what that meant was I stopped being European, essentially, on the 1st of January this year, 2021. And so uh, if I was able to move to Portugal or to Europe before that date, it was very easy. I went to the city hall and paid 15 euros and they printed out a very flimsy looking residency certificate. And now I live here, which I know is a lot is a lot easier than it was for you uh, to come here as an American and also is a lot easier than it is now for British citizens wanting to move here. So I was lucky enough to get here before that before that deadline. And uh, hopefully one day we'll become a Portuguese citizen and regain my European citizenship. Me too. Can't wait for that day. But we're getting there slowly, but surely. So let's go back to into your travel history, James. Can you tell me like what got you start because I know you haven't mentioned this but I know you grew up on a farm mm -hmm. in the UK so how did you get from growing up on a farm to you know traveling and coming here to Lisbon living this nomadic life so I grew up yeah on a farm a sheep farm on the Welsh borders of England um I I guess that made me very interested in the environment and nature uh, wildlife those kind of things and um also just rural, isolated and remote communities and how they function. That's kind of my core 
core interest um, and uh, and things related to that and the environment. And so, um, yeah, I, I grew up in this kind of small village, um, living that farm life. And then when I was um, 18, decided that I wanted to move abroad. I really wanted to go abroad to go to university. And so I was looking at ways that I could do that. And on Google found this scholarship to go to North Carolina and study and applied for Out the Blue. And a year later, found myself starting college in the US in North Carolina um, in this very kind of all-American school. And so that really changed the course of my travels and life to spending four years, four years in, in the US to study and um, kind of trying to understand how Americans think and work and very different to the UK culture in, in, in a lot of ways it actually made me feel a lot more European in, in certain ways, um, realizing how different the US and the UK were. But I absolutely loved living in the US, had such an amazing time. Um, uh, but after four years, I had one year free visa where I could work. So I went to San Francisco, like total opposite um, and then they kicked me out. <laughs> uh, no, it was basically that after that, it became too hard to get a visa to stay. And so that kind of, like some of that was semi-nomadic. I was moving around the US, but then what really kickstarted the nomadic for me was wanting to, not wanting to go back to the UK, but losing my US visa. And so after that started to really travel around the Caribbean and Latin America, which has been most of my travels. I haven't really traveled that much in Asia, but pretty much all over Latin America and the Caribbean. So what, did you go to the Caribbean first after San Francisco when you first left the U.S.? Um, I mean, I'd been traveling on and off to Latin America. Like I first went when I was 18 and then I went during to Chile the first time. I studied Spanish in high school, but then afterwards um, I, I did a program in Bolivia, um, had been to, yeah, diff- different places in Latin America several times. Had also traveled to the Pacific Islands during college. I basically this scholarship that I mentioned, I was so fortunate because not only did it pay for my college, I got all these travel grants, which was again, part of the reason for wanting to apply for it. That was as part of my degree, they would give me money to go on this travel to, to study. Um, but you know, I just happened that I chose very far flung places to do the studies that I wanted to do as again, to want, want to do this traveling. And so, yeah, I went to the Pacific islands first uh, but then coming back, you know, the Caribbean was much more accessible to do travel. And that was kind of an entry point into, into that culture and, and has led me over the last five years. A lot of the work and travel I've been doing has been in the Caribbean region, but also in places like Colombia, Panama, Mexico, Argentina, really the whole, whole Latin America and the Caribbean region. So what is it about that region that really interests you? I think the fact that I speak Spanish and trying to speak Portuguese and French, you know, a little bit of those two. Um, that really attracted me to Latin America at first. I think it's amazing to go to a place where you can actually access a different culture and have that entry point to interact with locals actually speaking the language. So that was a big reason that attracted me there. The Caribbean, mostly I was in English-speaking countries, um, Jamaica, St. Lucia, Guyana. Um, and they ha- Caribbean, I think, is often overlooked as a region, you know, especially for travel. People have this image of the Caribbean of the five-star, all-inclusive resort, which is obviously one experience, but is obviously not the lived experience of the residents of those those places. And so there is a very 
you know, difficult history, but also a very rich cultural history in a lot of ways. And I think the Caribbean as a region is built on being a mix, obviously overwhelmingly African influences, but also um, that, that came through the slave trade. Um, and that in itself is a whole conversation as a, as a British person with the country that was the colonial power in that region, how I relate to that. Maybe something we can mention, but um, also the Indian, as in from the Indian subcontinent cultures, um, the native cultures, Chinese, Europeans, Portuguese, there's all these different cultures that uh, blended together in the Caribbean. And so the, the culture is just really amazing. The people are amazing. If you think of an island like Jamaica, relatively small country, how much impact has that had on global, obviously music, but other aspects of global culture like food uh, uh, as well. And so for me, traveling in these in these regions was, um, yeah, was, was a really amazing experience. I always want to tell people like, there's more than the kind of stereotypical image of the five-star resort um, that the, the, the region has, has to offer. And I'm very fortunate now that I get to work with a lot of people from the Caribbean and, and also the ability to, to travel there every now and then. This is really what I mentioned at the beginning, what I wanted to focus mm-hmm. on with you, because I know you have this, I don't know if I should say specialization, but yes, like you mm-hmm. focus on the Caribbean, the Pacific, like you said. And I think these are places, especially the Caribbean, that people don't seem to travel to so much, except for, like you said, the five-star experience. I hate to admit it, but I connect like St. Lucia with The Bachelor when I would watch it. It's always... St. Lucia's economy is based on honeymoons to an extent, you know? And obviously, and there's a whole other thing that this last year has been extremely challenging for the Caribbean um, in terms of the economy, being a tourist relaxator, tourism. Caribbean is the most tourism-reliant region in the world. Aruba specifically, 90% of their income was lost last year because of the tourism, there's, because there's very few other industries in the region. So tourism is always this double-edged sword in that it, it feeds and, and provides work and everything else, the, the local economy, but also there's all the negative aspects of, of, of tourism as, as well. And so when that tourism disappeared last year, it hit particularly the Caribbean, but also islands in general really hard because in general, islands, regard whether they're the Outer Banks in North Carolina or the South Pacific or the Scottish islands, they often have a dependency on, on tourism. Um, and so I, I should mention, so I actually did my master's in island studies um, and for me, and that was from a Scottish university. And so after working in the Caribbean and being in South Pacific, I went to Scotland and being from the from England, I actually hadn't spent much time in Scotland. And that opened up to my eyes. Like, oh, wow. The people that I'm meeting on these Scottish islands are actually talking about the same issues as in the Caribbean. Um, there's obvious differences, the weather, the culture, the accents, but the, the issues are the same. A, the, the reliance on tourism and the double-edged sword, uh, but also things like the high cost of electricity, um, which is one of my areas of interest is renewables. People in the Caribbean pay four to five times more for their electricity than people in Florida do, despite the region being much poorer. Um, in the UK, the regions with the highest level of energy poverty are the Scottish islands. Um, and so there's a lot of different issues. There's other things, transportation, access to health and, and education, um, waste disposal, uh, but also just the feeling of, of living on an island connects these areas. And so I started my island innovation because I had this love of traveling to these regions and wanted an excuse to, to have a job that gave me an excuse to travel and to get to work with and know people from island regions, but also 
to connect what I was very privileged to have traveled to all these different places and could see, oh, wow, this project in Fiji could actually be relevant to this group in Jamaica who could learn from that, or this project in the Scottish islands could be relevant to this group in Hawaii, and they could learn from each other. And so I created the platform. We now have 40,000 island stakeholders worldwide who take part in our events and follow our, our news. Um, and, uh, and, and really it's an information platform to share people, uh, to share information between all these different people. And you have a lot of virtual events from what I understand. So we started virtual before the pandemic because our audience was so global, the carbon cost and the monetary cost of getting all those people together would have been prohibitive. And actually, so, so we did our first virtual event the year before the pandemic and had 5,000 people sign up, um, and I remember having to explain, okay, there's this thing called Zoom. You have to download it. This is how it works. So things have changed very quickly, but what it also gave was a level of accessibility. And so, um, you know, I'd been working in conferences around the United Nations and things for several years. And all of the events I'd been going to kind of had closed doors to this, like, elite level of people. And I was, I was actually, there's a lot of people who don't have the financial resources, but could benefit from taking part in these conversations. And so uh, I wanted to do something that was really accessible. And we have people that range from government ministers and, and, and we have, you know, high level politicians take part in our events, but we will also have like, we have farmers from Papua New Guinea and small business owners and people who are just doing a project to make their village more, more, sustainable you know and this whole range of people working on initiatives and I think that's that's really powerful what is some of the what are some of the most interesting initiatives or programs you've seen in, in your island studies and having this platform for people to connect so yeah my interest is kind of sustainability and I guess when people think about sustainability they tend to jump straight to climate change or the environment um, but I think that's part of it but there's also social and economic sustainability so those three, environmental, social, and economic. And you can't have environmental sustainability unless the people are looked after and the economy is healthy. All those three things have to work together. And so there's a lot of interesting projects that are happening. I mean, for example, in, in Orkney, which is off the north coast of Scotland, which is where I did my island studies degree, there is the European Marine Energy Centre where they have this like pioneering research into using waves and tides to generate electricity and that is very useful for them but has also got this wider applicability that could be put in a lot of other places and i think um is interesting and so there's this idea that okay an island might be a small system but the projects or initiatives happening there could have a wider applicability to to society um there, there are, you know, there's, there's interesting initiatives that range from, there's, there's, there's someone uh, that I really admire in Barbados who is doing initiatives to um, save turtles there, which is, you know, going to the beaches, making sure that the seaweed doesn't pile too high on top of the nests and kind of kill the, kill the um, hatchlings as they're coming out collect them, protect them. And um, I think, you know, those kind of really localized initiatives are just as important as the big um, kind of wide scale climate change goals that are happening as well. It's really interesting. And I, like you said, you can, there's like implications around the world. If one island mm -hmm. can start doing something that can help everyone. Um, if I'm a tourist going into, let's say the Caribbean, mm -hmm. how can I access the 
real Caribbean. <laughs> I'm saying this with yeah. my air quotes. But. Well, I think Airbnb changed travel in the Caribbean in a big way. Before, it was very difficult to travel in the Caribbean because your only option was often a four or five star fancy hotel, which minimum $200 a night. And there are others that, you know, $10,000 a night for those beautiful, uh, <laughs> beautiful ones in St. Lucia that you mentioned before. Um, so I think the Airbnb has opened. There are a handful of hostels in the Caribbean, not very many. I think Jamaica has several now and it's becoming a little bit more popular. I would say Jamaica is one of the most accessible countries. Caribbean is not necessarily a cheap region to travel. I think that's often why it gets overlooked. You know, you can go to Colombia or um, Mexico and have like very cheap trips and also the flights will generally be cheaper. Um, the Caribbean is, I guess, a very... Um, there's a very varied region. There's a, it really depends where you go. So some of the most expensive places in the world are Cayman Islands and Bermuda, which you know, you'll know you spend more per day than you would in, in New York. Um, Jamaica is relatively affordable, but you know it's not Colombia or Mexico prices. But there are hostels there. And the reason I mention hostels is you know that at least allows you to um, kind of engage a little bit with a community and they, they're used to helping people access Something so I would say that in terms of like the Anglophone Caribbean, Jamaica is a really good starting point. Um, Jamaica does have a reputation for being violent, and that's not unwarranted. Um, so I don't want to just ignore that. But you know, so does Brazil, so does South Africa, um, and people still go to those countries and, and 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 travel. And I think it's a similar thing. You have to be like any quote-unquote dangerous country you have to be aware of what you're doing and be, be sensible but I think um, Jamaica gets unfairly stigmatized often for being dangerous um, and yeah it's always difficult when, when there is a high level of, 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 of gun crime there I don't want to ignore that um, but as I say there are these other countries that people travel to which have similar rates and people still backpack there and again Brazil South Africa are the more obvious ones so, so I think it's just a matter of being being sensible of, of where you're going and, and keeping that in mind. Um, the nightlife, the music, um, the mountains, the beaches—it's got got everything. And Kingston is a Kingston is a really cool city. Once you can get to grips with it, um, it can be a bit daunting at first. Um, but also, there's a relatively cheap um, and easy bus service now that goes around the island that has. Um, air conditioning is quite nice you know um, very nice coaches where you're in comfort and can go between most of the towns um, there are also local buses for a fraction of the price um, but you don't have comfort in those necessarily and they're a bit rickety they don't have air conditioning you're crammed in with all the other people but then you can travel very very cheap in those in those kind of buses so it all depends on your, your budget I guess um other places uh, that, like, actually, there are a lot of the smaller islands, like St. Lucia, can be more expensive. St. Lucia, Barbados, really amazing places in their own right, but they're relatively small and relatively expensive. And so I think that often puts people off. Jamaica's a big island. Um, and, and another place that I really like, which is really off the travel radar, is Guyana. Um, so Guyana is on the South American continent next to Venezuela, between Venezuela, Brazil, and Suriname. Um, and it is not somewhere that tourists go to at all. It's relatively difficult to get to. It has a super interesting culture. It's um, basically the two big cultural groups there are Afro-descendants 
and Indian, Hindu, and Muslim descendants. And so they have all this mixture of those, also a relatively large um, Amerindian native population, Portuguese population. So they have all these different groups that mix in. I think I missed one Chinese as well. All these different groups that mix in. And so really interesting culturally. Um, very little tourism infrastructure. Um, so a, a bit more challenging maybe than, than other areas, uh, but also just makes for a very interesting trip. And I, I was there. I actually took a flight over the, it's not the Amazon, but essentially the, most of the country is this huge rainforest. Flew to their, their waterfall, which is one of the biggest waterfalls in the world under one measurement. I forget which, you know, there's all these waterfalls for different reasons that big. Um, and was in like an eight-seater plane flying over this huge rainforest, which covers the whole country. And that was just such an incredible, incredible experience. And um, it's culturally Caribbean. That's why I mentioned it, even though it's on the South American continent. Culturally, it shares more in common with the rest of the English-speaking Caribbean. And so tends to be grouped in as a Caribbean country, even though it's maybe a little bit further away from the rest of the region. This is a thing I think people might really need to take a look at a map and yeah. just really, truly understand, like, this is a huge region, actually, with so many islands. I, I've only been to maybe one or two. I've only mm-hmm. been to Haiti, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so much more for me to discover and everyone else, I think. But I, when, when you mentioned buses, I think that is one big impediment because, like, you either have to run a car and I have this vision that it's expensive because they want to limit the number of cars, sometimes they just don't have the cars mm-hmm. to cover these places. But if they had, if I knew they had buses that were, like you said, comfortable, frequent, affordable, it would be, I think, a game changer for some of these islands. Totally. And it's difficult. I think it's a good point. It's difficult to generalize about the Caribbean region. I'd like to talk about the Pacific a little bit as well, if we get a chance. Um, another island region, which I, I think is an amazing place to travel. But the Caribbean is obviously much more accessible for particularly people living in Europe and obviously North America. It's, it's just more reasonable and easier to get to. Um, but the Caribbean, you know, extends from obviously all the islands. Generally, Belize is grouped in the Caribbean, mostly because it's English speaking culturally close to the Caribbean, even though it's in Central America. And then Guyana and Suriname in the south, um, which are in Suriname they actually speak Dutch as the main language and like several of the Caribbean islands they have Dutch as the main language there's the French speaking islands um, Haiti which is French Creole Haitian Creole speaking sorry Um, the Spanish speaking islands Cuba Dominican Republic um, and Puerto Rico which is a US territory and then the majority of the islands are English speaking but many of those are independent countries but there are also still British territories US territories um, Colombia and Nicaragua both have islands which are culturally English-speaking Caribbean Afro-descendant majority, even though they're part of those countries. Um, so there's this whole range of different cultures in a very small area. One of the challenges is also that traveling in the Caribbean between islands can be very difficult. There are not many ferries between the islands, and often it's easier to fly by in Miami than to get a flight between two islands that might not be too far apart. Um, Or it can be as expensive to get between two islands as it is to get from Europe to the Caribbean. So, um, you know, there are challenges there, but I think it's it's definitely a region that's that's worth exploring. You're getting me excited about this. (laughs) I guess now we should move over to the the Pacific. Yeah, so just to mention the Pacific as as another island region that I really, really love and obviously... Not the, unless you're already in Australia or New Zealand, it's, it's very far away. Fiji is maybe somewhere that people are more familiar with and a few people may, listening may have traveled there. Um, 
I think Fiji has that kind of touristy area um, on the West Coast, full of drunk Australians. <laughs> um, but there are other areas. There's, there's, a, there's over 150, I think, inhabited islands in Fiji. And so if you go a little bit off that beaten track, um, there's a really interesting culture there. I also think, you know, mentioning cultural diversity, there's an indigenous Fijian population, but half of Fiji's population is ethnically Indian from the Indian subcontinent. So you also have this whole group of, of, of you know, cultural diversity that I think makes it an interesting place to travel to. And it's just incredibly beautiful um, and obviously very hospitable people. And uh, other parts of the Pacific are a bit more challenging to get to. But equally, I think uh, if, you, if you're able to spare a bit of extra time and, and have the budget to go off-road a little bit, or if you're already in New Zealand, which is relatively easy to get to, maybe from Hawaii, um, would encourage people to look to these regions um, for slow matting, travel, nomading, whatever it is. Yeah, and I think these are becoming some of the last bastions of true cultural diversity because they're remote or they have, you know, they've kept their cultural identity mm-hmm. much more. They have so. relatively, relatively few tourists too. I mean, I visited Tuvalu. Um, Tuvalu is one of the smallest countries in the world. The whole country has 10,000 people. Um, there's one flight a week there from, from Fiji. Super, super remote. Uh, once you're there, you're there. Um, and the air, the actual the air, the airstrip goes through the middle of the island and it's just used as a, as a road and a football uh, a football pitch during the week and then they vacate it once uh, once a week for the for the airplane to land and again just a very very different different experience um, but the Pacific Islanders are a really really amazing culture and I think um, there's also a lot of diversity between them like in the Caribbean region it's very different diversity between between the region and uh, often gets overlooked despite the fact that the Pacific covers one third of the world's surface. Right. Yeah, I, I went to Easter Island once. Wow. And that was, that was like a five-hour flight from Santiago, Chile. But they had, I, di- I didn't know at the time, but they have a connecting flight onward to Papit? Yeah, Tahiti. Papiti. Okay, I know I'm not saying that right. French Polynesia. French Polynesia, yes. And I was like, I just keep going. <laughs> but um, one thing I struggled with there was, of course, Wi-Fi, because mm, apparently yeah. it's one of the most remote islands in the world. But I will tell listeners that it's gotten to the point, and maybe this is partly because it was Easter Island, but there are generally five-star hotels that seem to magically have better Wi-Fi. So if you are there trying to get connections, I think it's to, we're to the point now in, in the world that you can get a good connection and, to and, be able to get your work done if you're going around or... Internet connections in the Caribbean generally I found to be pretty good. Pacific depends where you are. Bigger islands like Fiji and Samoa, it's okay. Um, smaller islands, Tuvalu, no. It was a dial-up connection. We waited a very long time. Um, but obviously it varies depending which part of which country you're in. And often um, mobile internet can be pretty stable. Even if like the you know home internet is not, you can get relatively... Well, not always cheap, but you can get relatively stable uh, 4G connection to do to do work from. So there's always a way. Yeah. Hopefully it's getting easier and easier as well. What are some of your favorite islands? I know you've already mentioned Jamaica. Yeah, Jamaica and Fiji are two places that I really admire. Um, if we want to go, uh, I guess, to, to, to Europe, to the Scottish islands, somewhere very, obviously very, very different. But I spent some time as Orkney. Um, off the north coast of Scotland. So you basically drive to John O'Groats, which is the northernmost point of mainland Britain, mainland Scotland. 
And then you get a ferry for like an hour north from there. And in the North Sea, Orkney is this archipelago of about 20 islands with about 20,000 people living on. Um, and I, I always think of it as like the Republic of Orkney. It, it almost seems like a world apart from the rest of mainland Britain. And people will say when they go into the mainland, oh, we're going to Scotland. Like Scotland is another country that's far away. Um, but, but a really, really interesting, like windswept, not your warm beach vacation, all the beautiful beaches, but um, not your not, not the warmest place to go. But it just depends what, what, what you like. Somewhere that I really want to go, I haven't had a chance to go to yet, is the Faroe Islands, which lie just north, between Orkney and Iceland, essentially, is the Faroe Islands. Um, haven't made it there yet. There's a lot of islands on my, on my bucket list that I still have to visit. And uh, the last year, unfortunately, has, uh, has stopped my island hopping to an extent. Yes. <laughs> Uh, how do you get to the Faroe Islands? Faroe Islands, there's a flight, easiest way is from Copenhagen. There's okay. daily flights from, because it's still a Danish territory. Even though it's self-governing, it's a Danish territory. Um, or you can, I think there's a weekly flight from Edinburgh as well. But I think the easiest, cheapest way is Copenhagen. Okay. Yeah, there are so many islands to explore. And and what yeah. I've discovered is every time I go to an like a country that... I, you know, didn't think had any island territories. I find out that they do, like in Portugal mm-hmm. here, as we know, we've got the Azores and Madeira, which I've had an interview with uh, someone who started a digital nomad community in Madeira this year. But in terms of other islands, like I know that there's this talk about people moving to rural places mm-hmm. since the pandemic and like the countryside. Do you see the same for islands in the future? Do you think people are going to start going more towards islands, especially like smaller islands? It's already true. It's already happening. Um, I mean, talking about Scotland, you know, there's actually a, a housing crisis in the Scottish islands because so many people are moving to them. And so on the one hand, it's great that you have, particularly if you have younger families, because often these islands and, and many islands around the world have been a place that as soon as you turn 18 and you want a job, you might have to leave in many cases. And, and whether they're big islands like Jamaica, which has a big history of emigration to the UK, Canada, US... Um, or smaller islands like in, like in Scotland, islands have, most islands have a history of emigration, of, pe- of being a source of people who, who leave. And so what I think is exciting about this remote working is potentially op- bringing opportunities for people who live on those islands to work. So we often talk about like the opportunity for digital nomads to go and, and to kind of spend money and, and be a source of income for those communities. Um, and that's great, but also maybe there's an opportunity now for people who don't want to leave their island but felt like they had to because they had no opportunities to actually stay because uh, many jobs you can work from anywhere. And so I think that's a really good thing that will hopefully keep cultures alive and, and keep allow people to, to stay if they want to. Um, the, the double-edged sword, like all these things, is that if a lot of people are moving to the islands because they can now work from home, like, why wouldn't you if it's cheaper to live, more beautiful, whatever, um, that that could also kind of increase the loss of culture because you're diluting it with new people coming in. And especially like we see in the Scottish Islands, if that drives up housing prices, then even if young people want to stay and they can work remotely, if the housing prices is doubling, then it's they can't. And I, I think it's, you know, it's obviously um, people moving is, is, is one thing. I think when it becomes challenging again we see this a lot in islands in the uk is people buying second homes and for me i really don't like that when you see i was reading about a village in in wales not on an island but some of the touristy parts of wales where 59 of the 60 houses became holiday homes and there was only one family or one 
I think elderly couple who were left living in the one house and that meant that in the winter all those houses were empty and I, I think that's really sad and, and even here in Lisbon you see that to an extent of the Airbnbification, if I want to coin a phrase. So, but you know, like like all these things, tourism also brings a ton of opportunities and a ton of money. And I think it's just there's a responsibility to manage the impact that that has on people, so you don't also lose culture or charm or, or other things. And and it, and and it brings opportunity. And I think we're going to see a difficult transition, but hopefully, it's one that will bring more positives overall and we have to manage those negatives like housing crisis have you seen any islands or heard of any islands already making like plans for how they're going to adapt when the tourism does come back i'll give you one example i heard in bali as you may or may not know there's quite a large trash problem there was there was trash all over the beaches and i have seen uh, a few videos talking about how the locals have really gotten under that. I don't know if it was across the island, but at least in some of the communities, they're like, now is our time mm-hmm. to clean things up. So when people come back, we will have a better appreciation of how to handle all of this and keep the trash. Off I, I think what the pandemic has shown for a lot of islands is a need to diversify away from tourism. I don't think anyone's saying tourism is bad, but tourism should not be like in the case of Aruba, 90% of your economy. Um, I know, for example, the Balearic Islands, Mallorca, Menorca, Ibiza in Spain, their economy, their, their whole economy dropped by 30% last year, which if you think about the impact on people's pockets, individual families, that's huge. That means so many people unemployed. And so, but often there isn't another choice. And so again, it's, will this digital nomad remote working actually be an opportunity to diversify away from tourism? Um, I hope, on the one hand, I think there's a rush for people to say, oh, let's, you know, we need the tourists to come back. We need the money. So hopefully people come back as soon as possible. But then it would be a shame if that just resorts to business as usual, as usual without, you know, using this time that we've had to rethink how the system could work better. I think one of the other problems with many islands for tourism is you'll have a foreign or off-island company that controls that tourism industry. And so then, okay, there are some local benefits, but then often all the low-wage jobs are done by local people. A lot of the higher managerial positions are done by people who are bought in, and all the profits leave the islands to go to some company's profits. And so actually, a lot of, like, it's more sustainable to have people staying longer, who maybe are not spending as much per day, but are spending that in local businesses in a way that that money is actually going to stay as opposed to just being, you know, skimmed off the top and, and taken away, and particularly in the in the Caribbean region, but but also in the Canary Islands and, and other places as well, these big multinationals that own all the hotels, it, it really, um, yeah, it's really extractive as an industry, and and to, there is a lot of problems with the tourism industry. But if it's providing taxes that pay for schools and hospitals, then you know, to what extent can you get rid of it? It's it's really difficult conversation. There's not one easy answer either way yeah um you had mentioned like hostels before like if you go to Mm -hmm. some of these islands stay in a hostel and that might like give you another alternative to a five-star hotel Mm -hmm. but i'm also just wondering like how do you go onto an island as you said if you if you're going to stay longer and that's going to be better for the economies how do you really tap into these communities i've always wanted to know how to have a better you know opportunity or a better way to more quickly Mm -hmm. tap in and start being involved I've, I've seen some like people playing soccer or getting involved in sports games with local people is one way but 
It's like, how do you really start? Yeah, dancing to... seems to be the best way. People seem to yeah. always make, make local <laughs> friends dancing. I don't dance, so I don't know. But everyone talks about dancing. But I, I have interviewed one guy about dancing. Okay, yes, good. That is, but, he enjoys it. But I think, um, yeah, I think that's in, it's interesting. I, I don't know if that's unique to Ireland necessarily, but I think travelers in general is like, how do I overcome that barrier? Yeah. But also I understand if you're, if you're not committing to somewhere, then why should local people open up their... It's, it's exhausting for people to then open up their doors to someone who's just there for a few weeks and is, is leaving. So I do think that, you know, you can only expect so much if you're only there for a short period of time, if you're not committing to somewhere. Um, but it's also, I think it's it's on both. It's, it's on you to put something in as well. Yeah, you know, I'm just saying, like, you... how to exploit the economy less. Yeah, no, just, no, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, whether you're doing some kind of volunteering program, how can you really give back? It's 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 not easy. I mean, I think even we're finding this here in, in Lisbon, you know, how do we form real connections with uh, local people? It's easy to stay in your expat bubble. Maybe on a lot of islands where, where you don't have such a big expat bubble, you're forced out of your comfort zone a bit more sometimes, and that can be can be useful. Um, but yeah, it's just 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 a matter of taking part, getting stuck in and, and finding ways to, to make that interaction. But obviously it depends where you are, what that looks like. Yeah. I imagine per- perhaps even going on a Facebook group about that island and asking locals before you even get there so mm-hmm. that maybe you've got a local friend right from the beginning. And that could be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think fa- I love Facebook groups. <laughs> they're, a great, they're a great way of just getting a, a, and obviously a lot of people on there are, looking to promote their business. I, I think you don't have to take too much offense if someone is, you know, being your friend, but also trying to sell you a tour. I like people have to do what they do, you know, and, and people are, are trying to make a living. And so if you don't want it, say no, but you don't need to take too much offense if someone is, is trying, trying it on and also, you know, trying to promote their business or service. And, and equally, I think if someone is, is uh, it's always difficult. I think you never know, like, when are you expected to, pay someone sometimes people someone will do something really nice for you and sometimes there's an expectation of money and sometimes if you give money you cause huge offense because they're being a nice nice thing i think that's always an interesting one of like when how how to find that um balance yeah for sure well i'm gonna ask you a pretty wacky question now oh no if you were stuck on a deserted island you could only bring three things with you what would you bring, James? Oh, you should have warned me about this. I'm, I'm really bad at these. <laughs> really bad at these kind of questions. Um, probably water, a desert island. I think I'm, I'm like a quite a practical person. Okay. <laughs> I think that would be. Hopefully, you find useful. a water source and a spear. Know. Okay. So I could hunt. Well, I don't know if I could actually practically. Maybe a net would be better. I don't know if I could spear a fish. I could do something with a spear. Um, and can I can I take an iPhone? I guess it dep- is, is the reception there. I don't know. I, I don't know where this help. island is. I think there's a, there's a, I need a lot more details in this. But okay, I'm gonna say a water, a spear slash net, um, and an iPhone. <laughs> 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 that, I told you I wouldn't give you a good answer for this. No, no, I'm like, this is probably a similar answer that I would give. But yeah. It's like a whole different thing to think of. Oh my god! Survival. But I prefer not to be on a deserted island. You don't like I deserted li- islands. Well, I mean, it's beautiful, <laughs> but I like islands for their culture and their and their people. And for me, of course, is the natural beauty is is a region that you go to many islands and 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 um, 
oh, there are some beaches in Jamaica that I'm thinking, you're making me think of now. When are we going to go? We need to plan our trip. I know. But, um, but also, like, I, I think so much of it is about, yeah, people and, and culture. And for me, that's a lot of what travel is about, as well as the, as well as the nice views and the, the beautiful nature. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing so much about islands with us. Like, <laughs> when, I, when I met you and heard what you did, I'm like, I've never met someone that is focused on this kind of specific job and and it's i think it's really important it's, it seems to be there seems to be a gap there's like not many people are focusing on how can we bring islands together and have them you know benefit from each other yeah that's what i'm trying to do and uh so we we have uh, if anyone's interested um we have a big annual conference called the virtual island summit we have over ten thousand uh, islanders from around the world participate but it's open to open to anyone it's free to join takes place in September so they can visit the Island Innovation website and sign up for the Virtual Island Summit. It's free. Um, and, you know, we go into detail. We have a whole range of, like, prime ministers and presidents from different island countries who will be speaking, but then also, like, grassroots NGOs and farmers and people really doing change, like, on the local level as well. And so there's policy discussions, but also kind of interesting projects to, to learn about. And, and those are actually... People from, you know, I'm talking from a high level, from a distance and like being able to connect them. But these are the actual islanders who are doing the real things on the ground. You know, I'm just an observer. Do you also have like a newsletter that mm-hmm. you, can, you can access on the website? Yes, yeah, so we have a weekly newsletter, which has a summary of island news from around the world. Um, and uh, mostly on kind of environment, sustainable development related uh, topics. But uh, so we, we, we always ask our, uh, for people to send us stories from different islands and then we send that out every every week and so if you're interested in signing up for that that's also free and that will keep you updated on the different uh, events and programs that we're running throughout the year cool and when is the virtual island summit so it's early september the first week in september it actually takes place over a whole week and so you sign up but obviously there's sessions happening at all different times of the day because from all over the world and so you can just add the most relevant sessions to you to your agenda but you can also find Island Innovation on all your favorite social media channels and we'll be live streaming live streaming the sessions uh, there too. Cool. And we're going to put the links to that on theschoolofTravels.com. And if people want to follow you, is there anywhere else they should go? I love Twitter. So if you listen to this, send me a tweet. It's at JLsmore. Um, you probably won't be able to spell my last name. So look at, <laughs> look at the show notes uh, for <laughs> Ellsmore. Um, send me a tweet and uh, you can tag at Island Innovate on Twitter as well but also on uh, any other social media platform that you you like. We're pretty active because as well as the newsletter, a lot of our work is like sharing information through different social media platforms. Great. Well, thank you very much, James. It's been really nice getting to know you better here in Lisbon. And I really look forward to, first of all, going to Jamaica with you. But then, yeah, seeing how this can grow and finally getting to travel to some more of these places in the future. De nada. Un placer. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Muito obrigada. <laughs> Thank you, James, for helping us see islands in a whole new light, not only as individual places to visit, but also as a whole community of islands around the world that face similar environmental and sustainable challenges. I personally haven't spent much time in the Caribbean or the Pacific, but I'm excited to explore these regions in the future more as a traveler and not just as a cruise ship tourist or someone staying in a five-star hotel. If you'd like to receive updates on innovations in island communities or join the Virtual Island Summit in September for free, please sign up at islandinnovations.co. 
which I will put a link to on theschooloftravels.com. Thanks for joining us today, listeners. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money in this world. Living in this perfect world.